This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My guest this week has the quote, I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become on her website. And it's a quote that I've been doing a lot of thinking about recently. So many of us experience trauma across our lives. These moments can make us and or break us. My guest today, Ella Dove, found herself experiencing a freak accident which saw her life take a completely different trajectory. Reading her journey really proves to me that strength is so often about just putting one step in front of the other to get through. And I am so excited to have Ella here to share her story with me today. Ella, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, I'm coping with the lockdown as best I can. Yeah, living with my sister in our flat in East London, trying to get out for a walk every day. You know how it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's been a weird year. It has been a very weird year. And even now, like the fact that, I mean, I used to love getting in the podcast studio and chatting to people because you get such a connection. It's it's really funny doing this over the medium of, of the, the internet, but it's still lovely to, to have you here. And I'm so grateful for you coming on. I wondered if you could take us back to 2016. I know that's when you had your, your accident. And I wondered if, I don't feel like I do it justice telling it myself. So I wondered if you'd be able to talk us through what happened on that day. Of course. Yeah. It's so weird to think that it was nearly five years ago. It's it's really crazy. But basically what happened was I was out for a jog with my sister who I live with and she's the sporty one of the family. She was tra- training for a half marathon. I just went for moral support to join her and we didn't take our phones with us because we were only going out for like half an hour. We thought, oh, we'll just shove our keys down our sports bra. So we went out, had a jog and then on the way back, we were jogging along a canal path near our home in East London when I tripped and fell. Now, obviously, like I'm sure we've all fallen over just tripping over our own feet, but I knew that straight away this was something a lot more serious because I knew that my right leg was at a very weird angle. I knew I couldn't get up. And I also knew that I was in an incredible amount of pain. Mm. So I knew that I needed an ambulance. Now, of course, we didn't have our phones with us. So I guess that's, you know, rule number one, take your phone when you go for a run. But we had to wait for someone else to come along who could call an ambulance. So this man came along. I don't know how much later because I think trauma does weird things to your brain and you forget parts of it. But this man came along and he phoned an ambulance and then he hung up and he said, I'm sorry, I've got to go. I've got a train to catch. And obviously I was in so much pain. You know, my sister was trying to keep me calm, keep me conscious. We were begging this man to stay with us and to keep on the phone to the ambulance because obviously that could be how they track us. So, Mm. but he didn't, he left us there, which was 
horrible. And then we waited and a bit of time later, a girl came along and she phoned an ambulance and she waited with us and she stood on the main road and flagged down the ambulance when it arrived. So I was then taken to the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, where they discovered that I'd broken my leg, but I'd also had a dislocation of my knee. So the combination of those injuries and because the fracture was so severe, it basically meant that the circulation had been cut off to my right foot. I had no idea what this meant at the time. I didn't think it was particularly serious. I think I thought I'd just be put in a cast and go home on crutches. And I think that's what everybody thought at the time. But after further examinations, they discovered that I developed what's known as compartment syndrome, which is where the blood collects in one area of the body, because obviously it couldn't get through to my foot. So that can result in sepsis, which obviously can be life-threatening. So it was a really horrendous time. I was obviously rushed straight to surgery when they realised that and I had a 12-hour operation. They tried to restart the flow of blood and over the next few days I had three more operations where they took veins from my good leg and tried to put them in my bad leg and they were checking the pulse in my right foot all the time. And then after about three, four days, I remember the surgeon coming to me and just saying, look, it's not working. So our only option now is amputation. And so I was 25 at that point. So being told at the age of 25 that, I mean, being told at any age, but certainly being told at 25 when you've got a really hectic social life and, you know, out and about all the time, a busy journalist, being told that you're going to lose your leg is just... I mean, I can't even describe like the shock of that. It was just awful. And so, yeah, then age 25, the fourth operation I had, I became an amputee below the knee. And I think like it's just one of those things where I read your story a while ago and I remember reading it and just being like, you know, this could happen to anyone. It's such a, a freak accident. You know, you like you said, when you started, you know, I've fallen over on a run before. You take all the precautions, like you said, you probably did a warm up, you got yourself going. And it's just, you know, one of those things where you probably never expected anything like that to ever happen to you. And I guess having to deal with the shock of that must have been so incredibly challenging. But one of the Mm. things that I found really heartbreaking, just in the first, as you mentioned, Ella's written a book, which is called Five Steps to Happy. And it's something that I read prior to our chat today. And there's some really heartwarming bits in there. But one of the heartbreaking points was was when you wrote about that man leaving you. And I just Mm -hmm. read that and your account of how that felt I had just like tears in my eyes because I can't imagine how helpless you must have felt in that moment. And I think it's really interesting that you write later in the book about forgiveness and that you've had to really work on forgiving that person and deal with the trauma that that really left you, let alone the accident, but just being left like that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So my book, Five Steps to Happy, the main girl in it has exactly the same accident as me that I just described. But I mean, it's important, first of all, to say that it is a fictional book. It's semi-autobiographical in that, you know, she has that accident. And a lot of those emotions, as you've just mentioned, are completely what I felt those Mm. kind of raw emotions and the grief and all of that so I think sometimes people think it is it is all my story but I mean other than the accident it is fiction but Mm. yeah you're completely right that that journey to forgiveness is something that I also went on and it took a long time I mean you know I think when something like this happens you've always got the what if you know what if he'd stayed 
Or what if the ambulance had got to me sooner? You know, would I still be sitting here with two legs? I I don't know. I think the chances are probably not because when the circulation cuts off, it happens very, very quickly and a lot quicker than I actually knew about before. So, you know, it took a long time. And I think for so long, I was focused on the physical recovery. And it took me probably about a year to go to think about the psychological recovery. You know, I was offered therapy after six weeks in hospital and I then had four months in a wheelchair. And then after that, when my knee had healed, I went to an amputee rehabilitation centre where it was a one-stop shop for everything. You know, I had physio twice a day. I had occupational therapy. I learned how to navigate a kitchen in a wheelchair and on a prosthetic leg, all those sorts of things. I practiced my commute to work. I went on the tube. But one of the things I was offered there was therapy and the centre had a counsellor. And I really remember being quite dismissive and just being like, no, I don't need that. Don't want that. I'm focusing on these milestones of, you know, learn to go up and down stairs again, learn to be independent again. And I was so focused on the physical that I neglected that mental side. And yeah, about a year later, it all hit me and I was experiencing PTSD. I was having flashbacks. I'd be laying in bed and it would be like I had to watch the accident on repeat, mm-hmm. like watching a film that I couldn't switch off. And it just kept happening. And I, it, that was the point where I thought, okay, actually, I need to reconcile this within myself. You know, there's a lot of emotions here that I haven't worked through and I've just put a lid on that box and forced them away. But that was when I I thought, okay, no, I do need to seek help. Mm. And that was the journey to to forgiveness, really, Mm. you know, starting to have some therapy and really exploring those emotions. And now I can't believe that I thought that I wasn't the type of person to have therapy. I think we hear this a lot with mental health, you know, oh no, I don't need it. I'm not that person. But Mm. I really don't think there is such a thing as a person. I think, you know, everyone has mental health and I think that therapy can benefit anyone, no matter whether you've had a diagnosis of something or not. So yeah, it was a, a long process. And I mean, you know, still ongoing. Most days, you know, the positive days definitely outweigh the negative days these days. But there are still times where I think, what if but I've learned how to deal with those feelings now yeah and I think that's something about therapy is like it's not about dismissing those emotions or learning not to have them at all it's actually more about just learning how to cope with them when they come up because they're going to I'm exactly the same as you I dismissed therapy for a long time and I've recently started having it actually during lockdown and that's one of the biggest learnings I've had is it's not about trying to turn off those emotions or change your emotional thoughts and feelings it's actually just how can I cope with these better so that I'm on a more even keel throughout my life rather than the big ups and downs that you might have prior to that yeah exactly yeah one of the things I wanted to ask about was really about the emotions in those first days after your accident I think one of the things that I I got from the book and I know as you mentioned it is obviously fictional but I think you said some of the emotions are the same and and it was really that feeling of anger in those first days, you know, your frustration and anger at at why me. And I think what I found interesting about that is it's, it's real. It felt really real. And rather than, you know, this story where you read where someone has an accident, but straight away, they're like, they see the positive straight away. And they're like, I can do this. Like, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do all of these things. I liked that you really lent into that anger and frustration in those first few weeks. And I wondered if you could talk about what that journey of emotions really was like. 
Yeah. I mean, it is a form of grief losing a limb because you're losing a part of yourself. So, you know, I was told quite early on by a surgeon in hospital that I would go through all of the stages of grief that people go through when they lose loved ones. So obviously anger is one of, is the first stage of grief. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of anger and I do, you know, I'm, I'm quite a chilled out person generally, but I do remember having times in hospital where it was, I think when something goes wrong, when I'm angry, whatever my emotion is, it comes out as crying, which is really frustrating sometimes because if I'm angry, I cry. And then I'm like, no, no, that's not what I mean. To I'm, do. The same. I'm the same. <laughs> um, so a lot, there was a lot of angry tears mm. in those first few weeks in hospital. And I think I was probably quite difficult to be around. You know, my family came to see me. My mum came to visit me from Kent to London every single day, apart from one day for mm. six weeks. So, and there, I, I think I was probably quite quite difficult to deal with at times because I was very, you know, yeah, angry and and dismissive and pushing people that I love away, even though I didn't necessarily mean to. It's obviously just all part of the trauma. So I remember one particular time actually where after I'd been intensive care for 10 days, I got moved to a trauma ward and I had my own room, which was obviously lovely. I had my own space to have visitors in and things like that. But then obviously when new patients come in, they have to shuffle people around in beds. And I got changed to a ward that was with five other people. It was like a bay. Mm. And weirdly, that small thing, such a small movement really triggered me. And I think it was because I had come to rely on those surroundings of that room as my room and my space. And then to suddenly move me was to shake up all of my emotions. And I remember being absolutely furious, devastated, just a complete and utter mess. You know, Mm. I said that day, they moved me at about 10 p.m. at night. It was just one of those things. And Mm. I remember I just didn't really sleep at all that night. I was just crying. And then the next day I said, can you just put the curtains around my bed? Uh, I just don't want to see anyone. Just put the curtains around. And that is so not me. I am so chatty and I love socializing. And it was a really, really weird feeling to go to that place. But I guess I was just angry with the world. I was angry with myself for falling over. I was angry with that man for not waiting around. I was angry with the doctors because they hadn't been able to save my leg. And there was a lot of that. And actually, there was another time where after I'd been discharged, I went back to have an outpatient appointment with one of my surgeons. And he was the surgeon who was the first person to see me when I was brought in. So he obviously was the first person to operate on me. He was the person that had to tell me I was going to lose my leg. And also after the amputation, I thought he was being quite rude and abrupt and he wasn't, when he did his ward rounds, he wasn't really looking at me. He wasn't really making eye contact. He was just avoiding me the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I came to develop a bit of, yeah, anger towards him and thinking, you know, you can't even look me in the eye now. And basically I went to this outpatient appointment probably about half a year after the accident. And it was the first time that we would have been face to face in a room since I was in hospital. And I remember him coming in and just sitting down and looking just really, really pained and just saying, I'm so sorry that I couldn't save your leg. Mm. And it, it was such a moment. It was such a poignant moment. And it was when I started, probably the moment when I started to let go of some of that anger and that frustration, because I almost needed to hear him say it. And then I said to him, it's okay. I don't blame you. 
And I think he needed to hear that from me. And then he said, can I give you a hug? And, oh. you know, this big burly surgeon, very like not showing emotion, ro- almost robotic at times, mm. said to me, can I give you a hug? And I said, oh, okay. And yeah, he just gave me a hug. And and he said, there are some patients that you just don't stop thinking about. And you feel as a surgeon, you feel like a failure when you can't save something. But chances are, any surgeon would have been in the same position. You know, the circulation had been cut off. This guy was a world-renowned surgeon. If he couldn't save it, no one could have been able to. So it showed me, okay, he's human too. He blames himself and I need to stop blaming everyone else. You know, it's no one's fault. So I think that was a real turning point for me that moment. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, that is just so special. And I'm sure that that's one of those moments that really sticks in your head. But one of the things that I felt really came up when you said about that move on the ward was really like the lack of autonomy that you go from being a 25 year old. And especially at that age as well, you are so in the prime of like being like, I can do whatever I want. I've got my (laughs) own flat. You know, I remember being like that myself. And I guess it must have felt as though all control had been taken away from you. And I can imagine that just being the hardest thing to have to deal with is just being like, you know, you go from having all of the freedom to really just, you know, having not even a say about where, where you, where your bed is in the hospital. And Mm -hmm. that must have felt so hard. Yeah. I think independence is something that I've always, always prided myself on. You know, for a really long time, I was single. So I was very much that like, I'm single and independent and I don't need anyone to help me. I was really that person. And I think, yeah, suddenly for that to happen to me was really difficult. And it's, it's strange because I never would have described myself as someone who was particularly stubborn. I've always been, you know, I would have always said my sister was the stubborn one. You know, she, she was the one who stropped off if she lost a game when we were little, but you know, now mm. after this has happened, maybe stubborn's the wrong word, but it certainly developed strong willedness, like increased independence. You know, there was a time when I went on holiday with some friends to Copenhagen and we did a whole weekend of walking everywhere. And I basically had to be pushed through the airport in a wheelchair on the way home because my leg was so sore and I pushed myself too hard. And the girls were like, why didn't you say anything? But I didn't say anything because I'm too proud and I'm too stubborn. I just carried on. And that's definitely something that's increased since the accident. I'm I'm very, very proud. And that means that, you know, to my detriment sometimes, because I'm not always kind to myself. And when I'm in that state, when I'm in the wheelchair, you know, if I've got to rest my leg for any reason, to this day, I think it does take me back to that time when I'd lost all control in hospital and, you know, I couldn't even have a say of where I was sleeping. And it definitely takes me back there. And I think, I think that's why I become so determined, you know, like I, there was a time when my boyfriend came over and he was supposed to be coming over to look after me because I couldn't, like I was in a wheelchair. And I remember saying, no, I'm cooking you dinner. And he was like, really? Like the whole point was for me to like, no, I'm doing it, you know, (laughs) or like he would try to push my wheelchair and I'd be like, stop it. Like (laughs) just really, really stubborn. (laughs) There are good things about that because it, I think it's what's pushed me onwards to achieve things and it gives you a drive to succeed and to do what you want to do. But there is also a downside to it as well. (laughs) No, I think, I think it's very relatable. And I think actually it's something that I'm sure you like you would naturally lean into to go from one extreme you want to go to the other you want to go from having no control to really just saying no I've got complete control over my life and I think that's yeah totally understandable and 
it, and going back to um, the book you wrote, I thought one of the moments, and this is one thing that I think it's really important to talk about, is is actually after the accident, you write about how Heidi in the book is actually more nervous about how other people perceive her than really how she feels about the situation. There's that moment where she is um, about to go down to the cafe for the first time since the accident. And really in her head, it's about how will other people look at me? Will they be staring at me? And she also has that moment with her niece where she's so conscious of her, her stump where her leg was. And I just thought it would be great if you could talk about really how mentally you found that. And I think, you know, we're not set up in a world that I think is as catering and as accepting of disabled people as it should be. You know, we still have a long way to go and we're going to talk about that. But just really Mm -hmm. that first couple of weeks and months of having to navigate those emotions, how other people saw you rather than, you know, you're processing it yourself, but at the same time also having to process it for other people too. Mm, yeah it's really really difficult and it was quite interesting how different people reacted actually you know I had people that were just obviously just treat me exactly the same which was great and you know my family and my closest friends we would use a bit of black humor to help us get through it but yeah I think I also had people who just didn't contact me that I wouldn't you know friends who I would have thought would have at least written me a letter or something just Mm. nothing and it was because they just said oh we didn't know what to say so we just sort of didn't say anything and I think that's it's such a classic isn't it it's like when somebody loses a loved one and someone oh I just don't know what to say and you know really just just to be there is enough just to say I'm thinking of you I'm sending you my love like that's all you need at that point because no one can fix what's happened it's you know it's such an awful thing that's happened that it's not something that anybody is going to be able to fix for me so it's more just about knowing that people are there but yeah I certainly worried a lot about what other people thought and how other people saw me particularly when I was in the wheelchair nowadays I actually quite like it when people look at me because it's like I'm proud of how far I've come Mm. and particularly if I'm on a run with my running blade I love it when people like give me a thumbs up in the park I find that like I just really love it it makes me feel so good about myself but back in the day when I was in a wheelchair I would be shrinking in the wheelchair you know I've always been very confident and dare I say it, like to be the center of attention at times. So yeah, it was very weird to be like, I don't want anyone to look at me. I remember there was a particular time actually when I was in the rehab center in Lambeth and my parents came and they took me, we went to the South Bank and I remember being in a wheelchair on the South Bank, surrounded by people and just thinking, "Get! I need to get out of here. Like almost a panic attack. I need to get out of here now because I was it felt like they were crushing me. They were crowding into me because obviously I was not on the same level as everybody who was standing up. And that was really horrible. And everyone, when you're in a wheelchair, people do look, not look down at you in terms of judging you, but they look down at you physically. So, because you're just not on the same level, right? So it, it is weird. And you do sometimes think, oh gosh, how are people perceiving me? And 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 sometimes people did speak to me in a really strange way, like, oh, hello. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with my brain you don't need to talk to me like that you know it's societal perception in some ways that that you know people who are in wheelchairs are not in some way not as able as those who aren't and I think it is definitely something I think it's changing now I think it is beginning to change but Mm. I definitely saw it and it did give me a new insight having been in that position myself because I think I just 
would never have really thought about it before. And, you know, I was terrified of children in the supermarket because they would, children obviously just say whatever in, whatever's in their head. And now I've had some great ones, you know, little pe- little um, boys and girls saying, oh, you know, you look like you've got a robot leg or like quite sweet things. But really depends on, I think, where you are in your mental state and where you are in that journey as to how good you are at dealing with other people's reactions. Mm, yeah and you touched on both aspects of your recovery both the mental and physical which process would you say you've struggled with more and I guess that's also an ongoing process you know it's, it's not a case of a year later you're like I'm done I'm recovered off I go but in terms of your recovery did you find the mental side of things actually maybe harder than the physical or was it the other mm. way around yeah definitely no the definitely the mental side was harder I mean obviously the physical side you know it was very tough I'd been in a hospital bed for six weeks my muscles were just very very weak it took a long time to build up when I was in the wheelchair my knee was held straight for four months so I had to work on my knee bend and that was incredibly painful learning to bend your knee again I mean even now I've only got 90 degree bend in my right knee which is fine for most things but just means like you know if I'm doing yoga I can't like do child's pose and things like that Mm. I have to adapt it but the physical side I think the difference is that you see you see changes and you see improvements a lot more quickly so you know, I could see my knee bend getting better over the weeks and I could feel myself becoming fitter again. And it, it, you know, I could hold a plank with one leg and, you know, you can measure that, I think, a bit more easily. Whereas with, yeah, the mental side, it's hard to know how you're doing. And obviously any, you know, you can, I think you can have setbacks a lot more easily where the slightest thing can tip you over the edge and then you're almost back to square one again and you're you feel yourself starting again on that journey so yeah it was definitely definitely a lot harder psychologically and yeah as you say you know it's an ongoing process for all of us I think even now I mean I'm trying to think if I've had times of being upset recently about my amputation and the honest answer is probably not it's less about the amputation now and it's it's more just about general general mental health I mean I do still get when I'm really stressed, sometimes that PTSD flashback will come back when I'm lying in bed. It's not as often now, but it will, if I'm going through a period of stress and anxiety, as obviously we all have over the past year, then it can come back. And it's, I guess, a long-term thing that, you know, I'll always carry that memory with me. So perhaps it will always return when I'm struggling about other things. But yeah, I mean, day to day, I think I've learned to adapt so well that, you know, I get up, I put my prosthetic leg on, I barely really think about it. And sometimes when I'm out and about with my sister or my boyfriend, you know, uh, they'll say, oh, that person was staring at your leg. And I'm like, oh, were they? I just don't even notice anymore. I'm so used to it. Yeah. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Uh, Would you say on your recovery as well, we've talked a lot about the work that you've had to do and how crucial that was. And it sounds like you're doing an amazing job of really taking it in your stride. But would you say there were also some people who really helped you around you? I mean, we know that support networks are so crucial to, to keeping us on the straight and narrow. Is there anyone in your journey who you've really felt 
helped you along the way? I mean, I am lucky to have a really amazing family. So yeah, so my parents and obviously my sister who was there, she saw it happen, you know, it's, that's a a big thing for her to have to deal with psychologically as well. And I think there was an amount of guilt at the beginning because she was the one coaxing me to go for a run with her. Obviously, there was never any blame there on my side, but that's something that she's had to process. And I think we helped each other with that. And that meant that in lockdown, when, you know, slowly all our forms of exercise were being taken away, I, you know, I couldn't go swimming anymore, which is my favorite thing. I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to get the running blade out, which is obviously terrifying when you've lost your leg from running. But it was my sister that said, look, I'll come with you. We'll just do 1K we'll be, you know, we'll be really careful. And yeah, since last March, she's the one that has helped me slowly build that up, which is really, really lovely. Yeah. So I'm on 5k now, pleased to tell you. Amazing. That's Um, so good. Yeah. So she's, so definitely I would pinpoint my sister and, and my family, you know, also my boyfriend who I've been with for two years now, I touched on it earlier, but I'd been obviously single for a really long time and, you know, that fierce independence and not relying on anyone. And then, about a couple it was a couple of years after the accident I started to think okay I'm gonna get back on the dating apps I'm gonna have a go we'll see what happens and that was obviously a bit of a journey when you're an amputee and you're trying to go on online dating it's like when do I tell someone that I'm an amputee but when I met him and clicked with him that was a real turning point I think for my body confidence because it made me see that it it sounds really cliche but that someone could love me for who I am and I remember actually when I was in hospital one of the things I said to one of my surgeons was was, oh, I'm never going to find a relationship now. No one's ever going to love me now. And he just turned around to me and just was like, not all men are shallow, Ella. And it really stuck with me. And then he was right. So that's that's something. And then the other thing, actually, away from friends and family, is that I think it's really, really important to speak to people who've been through a similar experience. Mm. So right back at the beginning in hospital, the same surgeon who told me that not all men were shallow also introduced me to another amputee who's the same age as me. But she'd had her amputation a couple of years before. And she came to visit me in hospital I remember thinking, because I'd never even really spoken to an amputee before this happened to me. And I remember thinking as she walked in, like she had this really cool, like vintage wooden walking stick and she had like a really cool jumpsuit on. And I remember thinking like, okay, so you can still like, you know, look good. And I know that sounds shallow, but I was worried about like wearing skinny jeans again because of the shape of my leg and stuff. These sorts of concerns that I think you have in your twenties. So yeah, seeing her and chatting to her and realizing that she'd rebuilt her life and things weren't as different as perhaps I'd imagined they would be was really, really good. And that's why I got involved in the Limbless Association charity and got involved in like peer support with other amputees. We live in a world that is so obsessed with the way we look. And I think that's what must make things hard is that, you know, just as you said, as shallow as it may sound, I mean, it doesn't to me, but you know, will I be able to wear the same jeans? Will I be able to look cool? All that stuff. It's sad that like we can't see, you know, someone like an amputee as being just as as fit and and stunning and cool and trendy, you know, all these things. And it's just because we don't see it. You know, the more we see it, the more we can engage in it in a better way. And I just think, you know, you mentioned earlier, we're starting to see disability across the mainstream media much more than we ever have done before. And I think that is just such a positive change. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess our focus is so much on the visual in life, you know, with social media, with everything, that the way we look is such a huge part of our identity. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that I'm almost trying to change from the inside because I'm a journalist and my day job is in women's magazines. I'm really, really trying with that. And, and hopefully combining my personal experience with my job will help to make a small change in that direction. But yeah, I definitely agree. It's it has it's got a lot better. But yeah, there's just a lot of judgment, I think. And mm. it is a shame that society does look to appearance so much. I mean, I'm guilty of it too. You know, I've never been skinny and I've always struggled with weight and things like that. So I, yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. And it's, I guess it's what I've been fed growing up through media and stuff. And you soak it up, don't you? Completely. Like we are all sponges. And like my memories from a young age was my mum was always on a diet. And that meant that I was conditioned to believe that as a woman, that was my life. It was like, you're on a diet or you're just naturally slim. And that was it. Like there was never an alternative. And I guess yeah completely our view of what a beautiful woman for example looks like was one body type and one skin color Mm -hmm. and we never saw an alternative so even the fact that we are seeing a range of people of bodies of women on covers of magazines on social media like it has such a positive impact for all of us whether it's for you or for for someone else that might have something that they're particularly self-conscious about the Mm. more we see ourselves reflected in the media that we read like the better the world is for everyone and and particularly like I think about young kids growing up now you know I'm I'm almost really grateful I'm sure you're the same that I didn't have social media when I was at school very Mm. much like there was Facebook but not really and I really think about that generation and think what is the impact of consuming all of that perfection and how can we really challenge that I guess in what we do now yeah and I mean it's something I've been trying fairly recently actually I'd only really ever used my Instagram as documenting holidays it was very much a personal account but I have started recently to turn it into a more yeah a more professional platform in terms of disability awareness and posting little videos on what it's like day to day as an amputee answering questions that I get asked a lot and I definitely think that there is something to be said for having social media as a platform to affect that positive change. I've had a great reaction to it as well. I'm really surprised by the amount of people that have said, oh, I didn't know that. Or, you know, oh, I've always wondered this. Could you could you let me know like what the answer is? And I think there are people out there who, you know, we're hoping and begging to see positivity on our social media feeds. And I think that's definitely something that hopefully by trying to do that in my own small way, then I can encourage others to do the same. Well, you're doing an amazing job and it is really, really great to see. And actually that moves me on to something that I wanted to ask you, which was, we've spoken a lot about how challenging your experience was, but I guess, and you you mentioned earlier about using black humor to get you through. I guess there were also some moments of joy. There were some moments of maybe discovery of finding a strength within you that you didn't know you had. Were there any moments that really stick with you as being really happy ones, like really big goals to overcome or just days where you were like, I really, I really feel good today. Yeah, there definitely were. I think if I'm pinpointing specific moments, obviously I would have to mention the first time that I stood up again after four months of sitting down because that was an amazing feeling. Yeah, that's the only way to describe it. It just, Mm. if your body's been crunched up like that the whole time and, you know, I tried to go to the gym and do upper body stuff, but 
just to be able to stretch out my spine and to stand up and hold my head high again was absolutely amazing. And equally taking the first few steps on a prosthetic leg inside parallel bars. So you're obviously holding on to something so that you don't wobble and fall over. But even, I mean, it was so slow and it did, it was painful to start with prosthetic legs. Like they can be a bit painful before your skin heals properly and your stump gets used to them. I mean, I didn't mind the pain because I was on two feet again and that was an amazing feeling. Equally, running on a running blade always feels amazing. I've still got some work to do on my technique, but that feels really, really great when you're going fast and the wind's going through your hair. And then I guess also the moment I was at my book launch and, you know, I was I was standing there with high heels on. I've got a realistic prosthetic leg that's got a little fake dove tattoo on the ankle because my surname's Dove. So yeah, I was standing there with this realistic leg that you can adjust the ankle height so you can wear any height of heel. So I was wearing some like wedges standing there posing with my family holding my book and thinking this is literally a dream come true moment you know maybe this wouldn't if we're talking about the what ifs well what if I hadn't lost my leg would this would all this have happened you know you never know so there's always joy to be found and there's always always positivity despite despite adversity and I really really believe that and I really especially in these times I think that's such an important message for everyone no matter what you're going through just that you know, you can ride out the storm and that there will be sunshine coming through eventually. Mm, And I think that's such a, yeah, it's particularly in these times, just to have that message is so important. And, you know, there are always going to be dark days. We spoke about how I do feel we've come some way. I think there are some incredible people doing some amazing things. I mean, activists and people with disabilities doing amazing things in the media and on social media. But we do have a long way to go. You work in the media. I wondered if you could... Talk about the changes that you would want to see reflected in both the media and and the wider public. Yeah, well, it's difficult. I mean, we have a lot of chats, you know, about diversity within my team. And I think it's a difficult one because obviously we want to be as inclusive as possible. And, you know, I have a personal reason for wanting to be as inclusive as possible when it comes to disability, especially. But it's about taking those people for the talents that they have and not just not their whole story being about their disability, I think. I think Mm -hmm. that's the key thing. You know, they might be a really good writer that writes about any subject. It doesn't have to be disability. So I think when we're trying to find writers for the magazines I work for, that's something that I'm trying to keep in mind all the time that, you know, I would hate it if I only was writing about being an amputee. You know, obviously that's a part of me, but it's not the whole element of who I am as a person. So that's something that I feel really, really strongly about. And I think that's definitely something that makes it makes the diversity and inclusivity of the media more natural I guess and it doesn't feel like box ticking if you're doing it like that that would be my main take home there I reckon Mm, I think yeah that's such a good point that we don't just want to see disabled people as being disabled they are people they're completely full of amazing talents and I think that you're absolutely right that it's not a box ticking exercise basically it's about Mm creating like genuine equality and and hearing people's stories for who they are. And I think that's something that I think is really important. And it's great that you say people like yourself are having those conversations within your teams, within big titles and big magazines, because I think that's, it's got to come from the inside, hasn't it? Mm, yeah, hundred percent. You wrote on your website as well. I had a little read before I came on it, as you can probably tell, but I, <laughs> one of the quotes I absolutely loved was that you wrote that you want to provide help, positivity and reassurance that everyone out there suffering, no matter what they're going through. We've referenced that we're in a pretty 
I'm going to say shitty time right now. Mm -hmm. I guess we we are coming out the other side of it. I do hope there does feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it's been a really, really tough year for a lot of people. You know, I've heard from so many of my following who've really struggled throughout this year, whether that's financially, emotionally, just being, being isolated from other people. What advice do you have for anyone that's going through something that they're finding particularly challenging from what you've learned across the whole of your life? What I've learned recently is about acknowledging your feelings and about accepting the situation as it is. And acceptance is such a difficult thing. You know, I've come to it in terms of my accident, but also just generally, you know, there's so many frustrating things at the moment, not being able to see people we love and not being able to do the things that we love and feeling trapped and feeling stuck, you know, feeling just like your life is on pause, I suppose. And I think one thing that I've learned recently is about journaling, actually, and how I'd always been a bit sniffy about it. I think because I'm a writer, I just thought, oh, I don't want to spend my spare time like writing my feelings in a journal. And when I was in hospital, loads of people bought me notebooks. And the more notebooks I received, the less likely I was to write anything down. We talk about that stubbornness, that's it kicking in there. Just like, (laughs) don't buy me a notebook because I'm not going to write anything. But one thing I've had a conversation with my therapist recently because I've been talking to her throughout lockdown, as I mentioned, just for general mental health reasons. And she said about literally just pouring everything out onto paper. And it sounds so simple, but it really did help me. It really, really did. And because you can be as honest as you want, you can be as critical as you want if, you know, if you don't agree with something that somebody said about lockdown rules or whatever, like you can literally like write everything how you feel and no one's going to judge you for it. You can just get it all out. And the other thing was setting intentions. So I think, again, I'd never really done this before, but just every day, every morning, just thinking about something that I want to achieve that day. And it goes back to when I was learning to walk again, I would set small, we talked about small goals and bigger goals. And, you know, a small goal might be, I want to put my shoes on and go for a walk. And a bigger goal might be, okay, I'm going to take a step towards changing jobs or I don't know, achieving a dream that I've had for a long time, contacting someone, networking with someone. So yeah, I think I've taken that mentality of small goals and bigger goals and I'm applying it to the current situation as much as I can. And that's really, really helping because it's making me feel like I am being productive and that my life isn't on pause. So that's something that has really helped me. So Hopefully that might help people. Yeah, that's a really good one. I know what you mean about just feeling as though, like my biggest struggle within the lockdown has been getting to an end of the day and just being like, what have I achieved today? I don't feel like I've achieved anything. Like my life prior to COVID involved running around left, right and center, going to meetings, doing this, doing that, and just being busy. And actually Mm. now, you know, I don't leave my flat really. I'm in the same four walls, you know, get to the end of the day and think, what have I actually achieved today? And and you're right. If you just set yourself even one small thing to overcome, you've done it. Like you've achieved it and you can tick it off the list if that's, if that's how you operate and what works best. And I think that's, that's something that I've also tried to do is like, don't overwhelm myself with things to do, but just a small list of things to achieve that day. And just also taking, like taking time to be kind to myself. You actually mentioned that earlier that like you have to practice kindness to yourself. You know, when you were talking about rest, it's a big thing that I talk about when it comes to exercises, we can push through and push through and push through, but there's only so much pushing you can do before Mm. you then are going to have a fall. So it's really about, I guess, recognizing when 
you're tired probably when you need a bit of a break and when you need that voice in your head to say you know what Alice today you can you can take some time off take your foot off the pedal just have a bit of a rest Mm -hmm. yeah and I think when you're a person who has that fire in your belly and that that drive as a lot of us do that's when it's so difficult because you you feel guilty don't you that you're not doing anything you feel you know and I there have been times where I've said to my boyfriend oh I haven't really I feel like this Saturday I've just wasted it because I've just been like reading my book in bed and then I've just like you know gone to the sofa and watched like Netflix or whatever and he's like welcome to like the way the rest of the world has spent their weekend Mm, exactly (laughs) you know it's just being reminded that that's okay that's fine yeah sometimes that's what you need that sometimes that's the best thing for you stay in bed read a book watch Netflix like we see those things as being lazy but actually sometimes if you flip the narrative around like I'm giving myself exactly what I need today which is to lay on the sofa and do nothing (laughs) Mm -hmm, exactly so yeah I try to remember that although it can be difficult time. <laughs> it's hard. Talk to me about triathlons and running and all the sports stuff you do. I'd love to hear about some of the goals you're maybe setting yourself and some of the things that you've done. Okay. Well, so obviously I can do my 5k now, which is great. <laughs> so now I'm focusing on my running technique. I had a session with a physio in the park the other day and he said, you just need to, rather than trying to build up your distance, why don't you just really, really focus on your technique? I've got some weakness in the hip on the side of my prosthetic leg. So I need to strengthen my glutes and my hip on that side. And I've been working on like sprinting as well. So my, my running blade is built for speed. And so that yeah that like speed of pushing weight into the blade and learning to trust the blade and you know and balance and all that thing I've been really working on that yeah try when you say triathlons it makes me sound like some Paralympian um, <laughs> triathlon in terms of that I so basically there's this disability event called the superhero try that runs well I say it runs every year obviously it didn't run um in 2020 I'm not really? sure what's happening in 2021 yet but it's a really really amazing event at Dorney Lake in Windsor which which it essentially is for anyone um, with any disability, adults, children. It's amazing. And you can either do all, there are three different distance triathlons that you can do. So the smallest one is a 1K run, a 100 meter swim, and then there's a middle distance and then there's a greater distance and you can do all of the events or you can be in a team and you can tag team and do it like a relay with people and it's really really great because it really means it's so inclusive and you can do as much or as little of it as you feel that you're capable of doing so I've done it twice and the first time I mentioned I'm a really keen swimmer but I'd never really done like outdoor swimming so I hadn't really trained outdoors at all and then suddenly I've got this wetsuit on and I'm in this lake and I'm like okay this is very different to being in my <laughs> local pool so yeah I did I think it was a 400 meter swim and then my sister did the run and my dad did the bike ride so we had a little family team which was really really lovely and then the following year I decided I was going to do my first kilometer on my blade so for the shorter distance one my sister did the run with me because even though it was a completely flat path and even though it was only 1k I was absolutely petrified I had Mm. elbow pads on I had knee pads on I was like quite slow. My sister was holding my hand for some of it. Anyway, we managed it. And literally the moment we came over the finish line, all of my family were there. Loads of my friends were there. 
everyone was just crying like it was so emotional (laughs) crossing the finish line hand in hand with my sister who obviously was the person that was there on that horrible day and has been with me the whole way along so that was like a really really great moment and I did that as part of a team through the Limbless Association so that was really really amazing I've recently been on a bike again I'd, I'd been on a bike in the gym but I'd never been on like a bike bike since my accident and I remember the last time I cycled was two months before my accident I went to Vietnam and Cambodia with my two best friends and we were cycling in Vietnam like through the rice fields and stuff and it was just really weird thinking like that was the last time that I cycled with two legs but in lockdown my sister got a bike so I had a little go on it and I was amazed to find they say it's like riding a bike don't they but yeah I just remembered how to do it and it was muscle memory and it wasn't as scary as I thought with a prosthetic leg so I've been out in London on Boris bikes and things like that since then and I'm thinking about getting my own bike as well so you never know I might end up doing the full triathlon at some point I think that sounds like an amazing goal to work towards. But also, what an incredible achievement to do that run. Like, I got goosebumps when you were telling me about that because that just must have felt so incredible crossing that line having your family there and also like you said overcoming the one thing that really caused you I guess a lot of anxiety and then Mm. to have your sister with you is just yeah so so lovely are there any goals that you're working towards I mean you did mention the cycling but I'm not going to put pressure on you to say (laughs) to say you're going to do a try but are there any other challenges or things that you've got in your sights well I mean I just at the minute I just want to get back into the swimming pool like just get me back in there I need to be back in there so I, I don't have a specific specific event that I'm working towards at the minute Mm. I I mean I guess it's it's continuing with my strength training and my sprinting with my running and then just like getting back into the swimming pool and building that up again I was I I was swimming a mile each time and I need to start building that up again so I've always thought about some swimming challenge actually I know they do those marathon swims like maybe something like that could be a good one for me because I think the reason I'm so confident in the pool I mean I've always been a good swimmer but the reason I'm confident in the pool I think is that there's no danger of me falling over and hurting myself and it feels very freeing to just be in the water because I don't swim with a leg on I just take it off and like Mm. slide in so I think there's something about that that just makes me feel so free and that's probably why I love it even more now than I did before. So I don't want to come on record and promise anything that I'm not going to do. <laughs> no pressure from me at all, but that does sound amazing. And yeah, that makes total sense with the swimming. I think I'm not the strongest swimmer, but I do love the feeling of being in a pool. I wanted to ask you about a post that you did on your Instagram. You wrote on your Instagram on International Women's Day, really a post about body acceptance you posted a picture with your stump which you you said was something that you'd really found challenging prior to that and Mm. I think body acceptance is something that almost every single woman deals with at some point during their lives and continuously continuously throughout their lives as our bodies change and grow and I wondered if you could talk about any learnings that you've had about body acceptance and love that you could share yeah it was weird actually like posting that picture of my stump on Instagram I've always been a bit funny about showing people it and you know I think just because it feels exposing in a way like it makes you feel quite vulnerable when I don't have a prosthetic leg on you know I am like unable to get around as much so it it is yeah I think I have to be very trusting to show somebody that and to post it on Instagram yeah it took a lot it really really did I I kind of hovered over like the post button for ages I was like am I going to do this and then I thought you know what it's International Women's Day like if I'm going to do it at any point this is a great day to do it and you know show female empowerment and stuff so yeah 
yeah, so I did it. And then the comments that came in were amazing. I had so many lovely comments of people saying, you know, well done for doing this. And you're so amazing. And it, it was makes me feel a bit almost embarrassed to like repeat comments. Because I'm like, oh, gosh, like, the, I have a bit of a weird thing about the word inspirational, because I think that well I suppose how I've recovered could be seen as inspirational but the actual act of what happened to me I'm like I just tripped over it was actually more clumsy than inspirational you know so yeah I have a weird relationship with that word but in terms of self-acceptance I think my parting message would probably be I mean I've been watching a a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race recently and he says if you can't love yourself how the hell are you going to love someone else and I think that's such a good message I mean obviously it's tongue-in-cheek but I think it's such a good message that you do have to reach that place of loving yourself and finding that place of acceptance with with what you look like and who you are on the inside and the outside before you can open yourself up to other people I think that's such an important message so that's probably what I would say on body acceptance. I am so obsessed with the fact that you just referenced RuPaul. (laughs) I love RuPaul's Drag Race too. (laughs) I'm watching the UK series at the moment and I completely agree with you. I love when he says that because it's so, it is true. And Mm -hmm. I think I like, I've learned so much from, from the drag queens on that show. Like I honestly think it's, it's incredible what they do. And I love that you referenced that because I completely agree with you, but that is such a nice way to put it. I always finish my interviews with two questions. So the first one is, what does strength look like to you? Oh, okay. I think to me, strength is knowing that you have overcome, that you've overcome challenges and knowing that you are able to overcome challenges and I guess loving yourself inside and out. I love that. And then finally, who in your life demonstrates strength the most? Oh, wow. You've really saved a hard one to last, haven't you? <laughs> I always read that last one. Everyone's like, oh, this is a toughie. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm going to say my sister because she saw this happen to me she saw my life change forever and she was the strong one you know she was the one that kept me calm she was the one that kept me laughing she was the one that got into my hospital bed and gave me a cuddle and I think it took so much strength from her I mean she was still going to work you know and then she was coming to visit me in hospital took so much strength from her and so much courage from her to be that shoulder to cry on and that rock that she continues to be every day. And, you know, she works for the NHS. She's a speech therapist. You know, she's been obviously working super hard in lockdown to make sure that the children that she works with still have support, even when they can't go to school. So she is, yeah, she's an incredibly strong person. So I would say my sister Althea. She sounds amazing. And I think she's very lucky to have you and you to have her. Ella, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for being so open and sharing your story so honestly, because I know that like, you know, it's, it's sometimes a bit daunting to come onto a podcast and just bear all, but I'm so grateful for you doing that. And I guess people can find you on Instagram if you want to share your Instagram handle. Yeah. So it is at Ella Rose Dove. And then also your book is Five Steps to Happy. It is. Yeah. So it's on Amazon or it can be ordered through all good bookshops. Amazing. Ella, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and good luck with the swimming when you get back to it. Oh gosh. Thank you. 
thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I have a little request for you all, if it's not too much to ask. It really, really helps if you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as it means that others can find it and hopefully gain from it too. We have a new episode dropping every week, so stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.